I-94 on Lumpen Radio. Hey, welcome once again to another edition of I-94. My name is Mr. Jamie Trecker. As always, I am joined by Mr. Jeremy Kitchen. Morning, Jamie. Mr. Michael Sack is on the road somewhere. I think he's out west exploring the Joshua Tree Desert. It sounds kind of nice, though unfortunately I know the trip is, is not a great one for him. But Michael will be back with us next week. So joining us today is the author and cartoonist and artist Jim Terry. He has a new graphic novel out called Come Home Indio. It is a memoir out from Street Noise. Jim joins us through the miracle of Zoom in these pandemic times. Jim, how are you doing this morning? I'm doing very well. Thanks for having me on. Appreciate it very much. Jim, before we get into uh, the nuts and bolts of this novel, I kind of wanted to talk to you about comic books in general. Uh, longtime listeners to the show know I'm a big comic collector and graphic novel fan. Uh, your art actually kind of reminded me a little bit of uh, another Chicago guy, Mike Norton, who works with uh, Tim Seeley on a bunch of stuff over at Devil's Due. Uh, you know, so it was it was kind of nice to see that Chicago vibe in your drawings. I want to talk yeah. to you a little bit about how you got interested. I can see from the bookshelf behind you, you've got a nice collection of Marvel books and uh, and some other essential items. What, what made you essentially, initially, I should say, get in to this form in the first place? Well, you know, it's it's the same old story. And by the way, as a little aside, uh, Mike Norton is in the same studio as me. We're both in uh, Four Star. There we so go. So I see him quite often. <laughs> um, at any rate, it was, you know, I'm a typical comic book story. You know, I, I drew ever since I could remember, probably before I was writing. And uh, <clears throat> in my case... Uh, I drew all through high school and went through college for art, but, uh, and I did comic books in college as well, self-published a couple, but uh, during my 20s, I was a kind of a wasted decade, and during that time, I fancied myself a bit of a, a bit of a writer more than as an artist, and I had written screenplays and, you know, a lot of prose, and, uh, but I didn't draw for almost the entire time, but, um, you know, doodles here and there, really terrible maudlin sketchbook pages, things like that. <laughs> but, uh, but after, after, uh, you know, I, I got sober, which is in the book, I, uh, I started drawing again and I realized, uh, how much I missed it. And I just devoted myself to that and eventually started working professionally again. But it, it was something that I lost touch with for a while. Mm -hmm. And, uh, I'm really grateful that I, I rediscovered how important it is to me. When you were a kid, were you, uh, I mean, you say kind of a classic comic book story. I, I can tell, obviously, you're, you're a fan of the old Marvel <laughs> stuff because I can see it on your shelf. But what was the stuff that inspired you to, to draw? I mean, I know as a kid, I'm, I, I grew up partially in Britain, so I, I was very inspired by like Judge Dredd and stuff, you know, and the oh, 2000 yeah. AD stuff. Uh, and I really love the old Silver Age DC stuff. Um, was there a character, an artist, or a, a storyline that spoke to you and said, you know, this is something I really want to pursue? Well, as as a kid, I know that my cousin gave me his box of comics, which had a, a long run of Amazing Spider-Man. And so it was the first time I was able to read a consecutive storylines and become involved with a character in such a ways. And that was a big deal to me. I, I, I'm still a Spider-Man fan, you know, but uh, John Romita Jr. was drawing the books in those days. And that was a big influence on me. But, you know, my mom took me to tons of movies and it was in the VCR era. So 
we had tons of really bad 80s movies and really good 80s movies as well. And so, you know, my doodles would be of really, really bad road warrior drawings and, you know, Darth Vader and stuff like that. So it was pretty much a, a funnel of things just coming down and drawing was the only way I could express it other than, you know, playing with action figures or something, which, you know, you don't have anything to show for that. Yeah. So we're talking to Jim and his book, uh, Come Home India, was a memoir and there was a few things, Jim, that I, I we have in common. Uh, the first was um, you and your sisters disgust by your stepfather's toenails. Um, I, <laughs> the reason I'm bringing this up is my sister used to cut her toenails and she would like chase me around the house with them. And I've like, I've never heard, you know, another story of kids being traumatized by toenails. So I wanted to mention that. And I also had a Delta 88. I had an 88. Oh, nice. Yeah. yeah. And uh, you mentioned that in the book and um, I'm not a car guy, but like when I got out of the army, I got out in 92 and my brother helped me buy a Delta 88. And that thing was pretty amazing. That was a, a, a very... Mine was too. It was, it was magical. Like the blues mobile. Yeah, and I would drive from Kalamazoo to Detroit. You could almost watch the gas gauge go down to zero. Like, you could see it moving because as soon as you hit, like, 80 miles an hour. Um, and there was that was – and the reason I brought up the toenail story, there's a lot of, um, you know, uh, dysfunction in your book and, and your relationship with your sister and, uh, you know, the, the things that we do as siblings. Um, so – was there any other things that were with that you would find or that you would uh in the story that were very humorous to you that you know it's a dark it's a dark memoir um Jamie and I were talking about it but there is you know splashes of humor and I know you're pretty funny in real life um so it was was there humor inspiration or was it just I'm just going to bang this thing out uh it yeah it happened pretty organically because the the deadline crept up on me you know i was approached by a uh, by liz francis who who began street noise books at a uh, at a convention <clears throat> at the indigenous pop convention and she had Did followed you say me indigenous on pop convention yeah it's it started out as indigicon and then they started calling it indigenous x and then it was <laughs> indigenous expo i'm not sure I just call it Indigicon, or I should say Indigenous-themed uh, comic convention or oh, okay. pop culture convention. And uh, she was there, and she approached me about talking about Standing Rock because I had been there, and I had shared about it on social media. And I had no interest, really, in being an ambassador for that because I, I wasn't there long enough. Uh, but she kept at it and convinced me that my story was worth telling and so she gave me a deadline because she has an acumen and, and, uh, and a, a plan for when she does things. And I agreed to it. And then I got a couple gigs that really ate up my time. So by the time I was able to finish those, I was doing Hack Slash versus The Crow with Tim Seeley. Mm -hmm. And by the time I'd finished that, I had maybe five months to complete this whole book. So I just sat down and belted it out. And, uh, you know, any humor in there is just things that, and same with any drama or, or misery, it's just what, what happened and how I was, how I recall it happening. And, you know, there's a lot, we laugh a lot. 
you know, so even when things are really rotten, we're laughing about things, you know, and so that sneaks in there, I guess, organically. Yeah, I know the social club that we share has a lot of humor in it. So I was just wondering if that was, you know, were you like chuckling while you were, were thinking about this? Oh, oh, I laughed a lot while I was doing this. And I was upset when I was kind of shocked when people would, some of the first people who read it, they were like, look, uh, I'm so sorry. <laughs> I was like, what? Uh, you didn't think it was funny? <laughs> Well, let's let's back up a second because you know the book that we're talking about, and we we really haven't even described what it is. It it is a memoir. You you grew up um, in an indigenous community. Uh, your home life, I think, is safe to say, was difficult. Both your mother and your father had issues, and as you mentioned, there's a long section in the book. Uh, you struggled with sobriety for years before getting into recovery in a twelve step program. Um, and I was actually thinking, I didn't mention this to Jeremy before the show, but. Recovery literature, there's there's quite a bit. I think you now see that quite a lot in American literature. But I was struggling to think of a recovery genre comic book. This may be the first one. I don't know if you know of any other or are familiar with one. But I had not seen the kind of stories that we've seen. And I guess Cherry comes to mind because, of course, we've talked to him, talked to Nico earlier uh, last year. Um, there's, there's not a lot of stuff that's dealt like this necessarily in comic books. When you started doing this, were you aware that this was a void that needed to be filled? Did you talk to the publisher about it? Or did you find other books that I'm maybe not aware of and and try to riff on them? Uh, I'll be totally frank and say that I am pretty ignorant about a lot of what's out there in the comic (laughs) world, especially today. You know, my head is in the 50s through the 70s as far as comics are concerned, uh, maybe mid eighties, you know? So, uh, I didn't think of any contemporaries, nor did I know too many, you know, I, I've read, I've read a few autobiographical books. And, uh, I think that my main purpose while doing this was to make a tone that was different from that, you know, because, uh, most of the ones I've read are, have been pretty neurotic and angry and, uh, uh, you know, uh, it, it's just, it didn't appeal to me in the same way for my story. You know, I didn't, I don't see myself that way. So I tried to avoid any tropes that I had, that I had thought were apparent to me, you know, whether or not they're true, I don't know, but I'd say the biggest source of influence in this book was, was Will Eisner and, uh, and his stories in that book, New York, which I talk about in the book itself. And uh, the incredible impact of those short stories. And, you know, I'm, I love reading, you know, so uh, there's a lot of memoirs that I've read. And, and uh, I, I, again, you know, it's the filter of all those different influences coming through. So I, did, I had no idea who had done what or if it had been done before. And it was the furthest thing from my mind as I was doing this because I, any second I thought I began to think that somebody else would read this, I, I became panic stricken and and froze and doubted everything I was doing. So I was just doing page by page just for my editor. That's the only graphic novels I read are the ones you've done. I've read the, uh, the crow with the black and white cover. Um, occasionally I'll pick one up at work, but, uh, so the two that I probably read in the last 10 years were both Jim's, um, just 
put it out there. Jim and I are old friends. We've known each other for a really long time. Um, and I was excited when this book came out. And I first found out about it. Uh, I'm just I was on the library website, and Jim's book was picked uh, one of the best of the best of 2020 by Chicago Public Library. And I'm just like. I was talking to my colleague at work. I'm like, I know this dude. So I put a hold on the book. And and, and um, that being said, there's a lot of J- – Jim and I, we had different backgrounds, but there's a lot of parallels, and I could see them throughout. And there was another uh, – there was a, a page where you did where all the – women that you had dated telling you why they couldn't <laughs> date you anymore. Yeah, that was one of my favorite pages. Yeah, and that, that was uh, – uh, some people might find that dark, but I was dying laughing because I pretty much had those same things said to me verbatim <laughs> over and over again. So. <laughs> well, let's let's talk a little bit about that because, you know, uh, and we, we will play some stuff uh, from Jim's novel in a moment. But before we get to that, I want to talk to you a little bit about your background because one of the things that comes through – in the book and telling your childhood was that it was difficult and, and trying. And there was, there were obviously a lot of dysfunction, but there was also a lot of love and you're very close to your sister. And despite the problems that you, you had with various family members, what, what does come through is a sense of connection and love, which I think is something that could have been lost. You know what I mean? Uh, to somebody outside of a graphic novel, the expressions that the people have, uh, the way people look at each other. There's a lot of communication in that drawing. And I wonder if you could talk a little bit about that for our listeners. I did want to just to throw on the end of Jamie's comment too. You know, when I was reading about your the anger with your dad after he got sober and Jim knew me when I got sober, uh, I was pretty angry too. And and when you read it from a outsider looking in, you like might be like, oh man, this guy is, what's wrong with him? But, uh, you know, what happens is when you come in and you stop drinking, all that stuff just comes out. You know, you haven't had anything to do with it. And my thing was, it's like I was just afraid of everything, so I just lashed out at everything. And that really, your your dad, uh, you could tell that you guys had a, a bond, but it was also a challenge. And then after you got sober, you you were able to understand, you know, where that was coming from. And I just thought that was very apt and realistic, and I could really relate to that part of the uh, novel as well. Yeah, well, and the truth is, is that, you know, both of my parents are gone now. Most of the people in the book are are either gone or, you know, I, I don't see anymore. And uh, aside from my family, my native family, who I who I get to see occasionally, you know, and my sister, who I see quite as often as I can. But I could never have done this uh, if my parents were still here. And I could never have done this if... Uh, I couldn't have done it 10 years ago, even if they weren't here, because I was a completely different person. You know, I was still figuring things out. And this just happened to be where I'm at right now with all these things. And I, uh, the last thing in the world that I wanted to do was demonize anyone, because I know from my own experience that, uh, you know, uh, people are complicated. Uh, looking back and dwelling on the dark times, <clears throat> as I call it now, I can only imagine what people thought of me at that time. And if they only knew me during that era, what would their impression be? What would their memories of me be? Probably not very <laughs> flattering, you know? So I, I tried to really take into account where people are were at contextually and, uh, 
and how how my perception of things might have tainted how I how I received them. And uh, you know, I, and you're right. I absolutely loved my parents, and <laughs> I, uh, I I had a hard time with them, you know. But that doesn't mean I don't love them. And I certainly and it and and nowhere did I think they didn't love me. You know, there were times when I thought they didn't when I was younger. But in retrospect, with a little bit of time and age and, and understanding of different things, uh, you know, you realize that love just is is hard. Yeah. <laughs> Love's hard, especially forced love. You know, and I, I look at all family love as forced love. You know, you're forced into this, you know, so you, you love them whether you like them or not, you know, and uh, born into it. You don't know. You don't always have to like them. <laughs> Well, we're speaking with Jim Terry. He's the writer and artist of Come Home Indio, a memoir. It's out now from Street Noise. And we're going to hear actually a selection from it. Obviously, on the radio, we cannot reproduce the pictures, but we've done the best job we can. As always, we want to thank our reader, Shanna Van Volt. She is backed this week by Angel Batawid, who graciously recorded some music for this memoir. Uh, after this, we're going to be right back with Jim Terry right here on I-94. We moved into a ranch house in the southwest suburbs of Chicago, a few miles from my dad's parents. Grandma sold real estate and I'm sure they secured the place. The block was quiet and behind the backyard was a stretch of untouched field, almost prairie. Our neighbor, Mr. Anderson, worked at the Hershey Chocolate Factory and would sometimes give us bags of candy bars, which my dad would quickly confiscate. You'll rot your teeth. He'd take them and eat them in the garage. Years later, when Mr. Anderson could no longer walk, Pop would throw me 10 bucks to mow his lawn, which I'd immediately spend on comics and candy. Pop got a job with Al Pearson, playing upright bass in his big band. He'd be gone for several weeks at a time. I don't think I was ever too sad when he'd leave. We were free to do other things, all the stuff he didn't get into. It was Mom who introduced me to the arts. The theater was a home to me. She was always reading and kept me in comics and books. My childhood with her was the quiet sound of pages turning. We were broke, but somehow she always found the dough for what would feed my brain. Once, we sat through Raiders of the Lost Ark two times in a row. I was worried we were doing something wrong when the place emptied between screenings. Years later, I realized we weren't staying for me, but for Harrison Ford. Oh, well. The best was going up to the Dell. It was the land of trees and go-karts and swimming and running around and the feel of the sun tightening your skin and grass under bare feet. And most of all, it was an agonizing four-hour drive from our house to the Indian Heights. I used to have a dream that we had discovered a magic path through a cornfield that got us there in minutes. I couldn't wait to see my tegas, uncles, moms, aunts, and all my brothers and sisters. There's no such thing as a cousin in Indian way. And Tony was there. Kanika's house seemed like the center of action in the heights, and that is where Tony stayed. According to my mom, dad could never get past the fact that Tony was another man's son, which was why he wasn't with us in Illinois. Tony had leukemia. Everyone knew he would soon be gone. It was only a matter of time. Until then, we played. One day when I was six, Pop came out of the house and threw me in the truck. We headed north in silence. Mom and Elena were already up there. I'm not sure we even packed a toothbrush. Along the way, he treated me to A&W, which scared me even more. He never did that before. He hated fast food. It was Tony. He was gone. Nine years old. When he left, I think it broke something in my mom that never truly healed. My secret shameful fear was that I would also die once I turned nine. I was relieved when I turned ten and deeply ashamed that I ever had the fear. But I think my big brother would have understood and forgiven me. Like a sudden storm, there was misery in the air and powerful, complicated emotions I didn't understand. Grief, pain, and loss were new and conflict was becoming familiar, shrouded in a fume of booze and anger. 
Tension and uncertainty became normal. A knot coiled in my gut and didn't go away. Elena was the only constant, and we leaned on each other without knowing it. Laughter through the tears. Eventually, it was back to Illinois with a malignant cloud hanging over the family. Guilt, blame, shame, and anger. And that was a selection from Jim Terry's graphic memoir, Come Home, Indio. It is a graphic novel. It is also graphic, I would argue, in some places. It is an unsparing recovery memoir talking about his childhood, uh, his recovery from uh, alcoholism, and uh, his involvement with Standing Rock and other movements. Um, in the selection we just played, that was a, a story about uh, Jim's childhood. And before the break, we were talking about his relationship with his parents. I kind of want to move on to, real briefly... Jamie, um, can I ask Jim a absolutely. quick question? Or I, I wanted a, another one mm-hmm. of my favorite parts of the, the novel where when you and your sister were digging, you found turquoise, and it turned out that it was the goldfish had died and your dad had buried the rocks mm-hmm. and you were digging them up. And, you know, that was just like, that was dad, man. That was love. And, uh, you know, that's... And as I was reading through it, you know, there was a lot of struggle and, and, and family, like you said, family dynamics are insane. But, you know, at the end of the day, you guys all loved each other. And I, that was just that part reminded me that. And uh, I, I really liked that was one uh, another part of the novel that I really thought was funny and enjoyable. So. Thanks. I'm, I'm really lucky because my publisher trusted me and let me, you know, whether or not she understood why I was putting something in there. Uh, she went with it. So I was pretty, pretty happy about that. And of course, you know, the, actually the selection that we just played from Shannon actually talked about that uh, moment. Oh, did about it? About digging oh. it up. So we don't, I don't get to hear the readings prior. So no, it's, it's all a surprise to, to Jeremy. Uh, but I wanted to talk to you about, you know, your time coming into, into Chicago and your depiction of Chicago. You know, I think uh, I I moved here in the '90s, and you moved here in '95. Yeah. yeah, around the same time, Jim. You had you know grown up around the area, but um, this time, you know, in New York, it was excuse me, in Chicago, it's a really interesting to me capsule because you know obviously this is a very difficult section of the book dealing with your alcoholism, and it's very unsparing, I would say. But there was also a lot that really reminded me of the milieu that was going on in Chicago at the time. Something must have attracted you to the city in general, and you can sense a real big love for the city, even though this was a difficult time for you. Can you talk a little bit about that time for our listeners? Oh, well, I mean, it was in the mid-90s, and, uh, you know, the city, downtown Chicago, I worked at I worked at Marshall Fields downtown. I, I never mentioned it in the book. I don't know why, but it's actually Marshall Fields on State Street. It used to be. It's I think it's Macy's now. But I it was a I, w- I had been in the cornfields for the last four years out in Western <laughs> Illinois, and uh, a very very small town. And I had spent over a solid year there because I stayed over the summer, my last year, and uh, and so I was very used to a quiet and very small town. And when I moved back into, when I moved into the city proper, it was a, uh, it was, it just felt like an entire world of possibilities. And, and I was a, I'm a huge movie fan. You know, there were movie theaters everywhere back then. And, uh, and I, you know, I was of a drinking age, so I was discovering every nook and cranny that I possibly could. And they were the grimiest nooks and crannies. You know, they were, you I wasn't hanging then? out at, What's that? Where'd you where'd you drink back then? What neighborhood? I mean, I'm probably all over, but did you have a specific hangout or? 
uh, at that time I, I lived up on Belmont and Paulina, okay. which was, uh, so I drank right on that, uh, Ashland and Belmont and there's like a giant whole foods there now, Oh, okay. which used to be a bank. And there is a porno store. Oh, yeah. And, oh, I remember that. Yeah, and yeah, the yeah. sushi burrito <laughs> place, right? You mentioned the porno store. Everybody remembers. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Por- you know, Chicago, this is totally unrelated, but Chicago doesn't really have a porn district like other cities. You know, it's like they're kind of scattered around, so you remember them. You know, you, yeah. I, I, even if you've never well, been inside. Yeah. Well, you, you know, I mean, you you just see them suddenly, but there mm. wasn't like a, a, you know, seedy middle area where they all were, but... If there was, I'm sure I would have discovered it back in those days. <laughs> and, uh, but yeah, it was, it was, a, there was an energy and, you know, the, I remember being, uh, at work and saying somebody who lived on 79th and King, my friend Shelby, who lived in a, in a rough part of town. And he was like, don't get caught downtown after dark. You know, <laughs> mm. so downtown was so different back then. It was dead. It was, there was nothing to do in the loop. There after, was nothing like there. There were. There were just zombies walking around, you know, people who were strung out on something or other. And it was, uh, it was scary down there. You know, now it's, you know, uh, Starbucks and it's been, it's been, it's well lit. (laughs) It has more light down there. There was a comic book store around there too, wasn't there? Um, There still is. Is there still there? there? I mean, I know I used to go up to Variety on Western uh, when Rick was still alive. Uh, that was my place because when we first moved to the city, I had a place in Roscoe Village before we moved down here. Was that like a little tiny storefront? Like, it was at Western and it was in Lincoln Square, but it was it was unique because it it had been open the longest, and Rick had painted it with pictures of like the Hulk and Captain America. I know exactly where that and is. The thing, yeah, yeah, and the thing. And Rick unfortunately died uh, a few years back. He had a um, a bad kidney problem, and he was he was discovered uh, dead at his home by some of the people who were working at his store, but I, I knew him for years. He actually also was a, a leading expert on 1940s and 50s comics. He wrote quite a bit for like Alter Ego and stuff like that. Uh, had a huge personal collection of comic books, but that is a completely different aside than, than what we're talking about. Um, <laughs> but I mean, you know, we are talking about comic books, so, you know, nice to get a little Chicago comic history in there. Uh, yeah. You know, that it's funny that you mentioned that because that neighborhood is, has radically changed. Uh, when I was up Absolutely. there, it was, uh, I think the first thing that went in there was like a crate and barrel or something weird like that. Cause it used to be like ties till four and like a noodle house. Oh, and ties. Mr. I used to go to ties. Yeah. <laughs> and, and, and that was really it. And the only time you'd see like other humans was when the you know, people were staggering home drunk from the Cubs games, you know, kind of trying to get out to those, those parking lots near lane tech. Um, what? made you though and i mean this is in the book and i just wondered if you could talk about it a little bit for the the listeners here what was it that caused you to say my life has to change uh and what about that if you can talk about it a little bit that was a seminal moment it's a seminal moment of the book and it was a transformative moment for you but can you talk a little bit about the choices you had to make in a very difficult time. Because as I recall in the book, you know, and other people in your family were also getting sober and you had to make that choice as well. Can you talk a little bit about that? Uh, yeah, I suppose so. Uh, I mean, it's not super complicated to me. You know, I was broke. I was, I was, uh, unemployable. I was, unromanticizable 
I was, I was pretty unlovable at that point, you know, and I was completely alone and I had always suffered from a feeling of loneliness and to have it become a tangible reality was overbearing. And, you know, a lot of that was my own fault because I had a tremendous amount of guilt and shame around how I was living my life as well. And, uh, uh, but, and I, and I was spiritually morally and financially bankrupt. And I got to a place where, where uh, I just didn't want to wake up anymore, you know, and, and I, and I knew that my parents were sober. I knew that they had done it. Uh, you know, I had, I still had major issues with them, but the proof was in the pudding with them, you know, so I knew that it could be done. And if they could do it, I probably could too. And uh, it just got to that point. And I'll, I'll tell you the honest truth. If I had $50 in my bank account, I might not have made that decision, <laughs> you know, at that time. But I was, I had nowhere else to go, nowhere else, nowhere. I, I had nothing, absolutely nothing. So the time was, it, it was just a, a reality that I had to face. You used the, the rope in your gut as a, as a model of, you know, getting, you had this knotted up rope in the, in the book. And there's a hilarious part where, uh, in the book where Jim's talking to an a uh, excuse me, a 12 step old timer. And, uh, you know, Jim says, Oh, Hey, old man, who's been sober for many decades. Can you explain this tension leaving my gut? And then he's like, sure. You ungrateful little beep. <laughs> and, uh, and then Jim's like much obliged, you know, and it's, <laughs> but that, I, I think there is this, you know, for me, I describe it as like a weight being lifted. I know that's kind of a corny analogy, but the there's this point where you get where the rope unravels or the, the weight is lifted in it. And uh, basically, the my experience was exactly the same as yours, Jim, you know, and why I came into uh, recovery. But I just, I, I thought that the, the, the way that you drew and wrote about your last days and then the early times were so spot on. And I don't always see that. Sometimes, you know, when you read recovering memoirs, it's like, you know, I was smoking crack for five days. And like, it's like this rock star, like, like BS. Like, like Hunter Biden. Yeah. Like yeah. toughness, you know. Yeah. And this one was just like, man, I was, you just said it, rock bottom. Didn't have 50 bucks in my bank account didn't know what to do next. And, and then just like, uh, talking to people when you're new and recovering, I mean, it's, it's crazy. And uh, I think you did a really good job of, um, being lucid about the crazy and, and the feelings and things like that. It was it, it, when I, I mean, I was, I have to, you know, Jim's my friend and I'll admit that, but I was, I was like really impressed with the emotion in the book. I, I sent you an email earlier this week and it was, um, I just, I just think you nailed it, and uh, I'm grateful, and I'm hopeful. You know, I, I guarantee that other people, you know, somebody might pick this up down the road and be like, you know what, I need to follow in his footsteps because, you know, I'm feeling the same way. That just, it's just the way that you described it. So, just thought I would share that with you and and see if you had a take on it. Well, thanks, man. I that that really does that, that's helpful to me because. Uh, you know, I'm, I try to be as I, I struggle to be a humble person in my in my life. And and to me, talking about these things, uh, I'm also pretty private about my my own lives. And so this is the antithesis of, of that. And uh, 
And the only thing that I can hope for is that by sharing this, it is helpful to somebody. That is the only reason to do something like this, as far as I'm concerned. And I say that trying not to be grandiose about it, but very realistic in, in that I'm sure that when Pete Townsend wrote Empty Glass and released that album, he had no idea that it would end end up, you know, on repeat in my Belmont apartment with me drinking, crying and singing <laughs> along with, you know, that was not his intention, you know, but later on I've, you know, I, I, uh, I connect in different ways to that music and it means a lot to me. And I can't tell you how many times when I was in those dark days where I thought I was the absolute only person who felt this way. And if only I could talk to some of these artists, you know, if I, if only I could talk to Iggy pop, cause I know he's felt this way. <laughs> you know, I, if, if only I could talk to Lou Reed, because I know he's felt this way, you know, stuff like that. I would I would think that. And uh, I just want I just want to express how I was feeling and let others know that they're not the only ones that are feeling this way. We're speaking with the artist and writer Jim Terry. He's got a brand new memoir, Come Home Indio. It's a graphic novel out from Street Noise. We need to take a break real quick to thank the folks that make the station possible. After that, we're going to be back with another selection from Jim's book, and then we're going to wrap up our conversation with him. You are listening to I-94 right here on WLPN Lumpen Radio. We'll be right back after these messages. And now back to I-94 on Lumpen Radio. Waitha, Elena, and I packed the Jeep with anything we could think to bring. There were blankets and jackets and cold weather gear. We planned on sleeping in a tent, but really had no idea what to expect. Manny, Waitha's son, made her promise not to get arrested. But this is for Mother Nature's son, she reasoned. Yeah, but you're my mother, so she promised him. I was going with two of my favorite people, but I was still nervous. Sure, I was worried about the physical danger. The videos showed clear harmful intent, and I understood that the non-lethal ammo was specifically being aimed at faces and groins. Dirty poker and painful, crippling, painful, terrifying. What worried me more was that, unlike me, these were real Indians, natives who were taking a stand against something older than the country itself, greed, to protect a resource as old as life, water. Would they spot me as a fraud immediately? Would they know that, although my intentions were true, I was not qualified to stand alongside them? The lifelong feeling of exclusion, a genetically induced imposter syndrome, rattled at the back of my mind and at the base of my gut. Long stretches of road and the GPS was hilariously inept. We worried maybe we were on the wrong stretch when an eagle soared above us. No, we're on the right road. We laughed a little at that, then went quiet because we all believed it was true. We were treated to a pretty spectacular Minnesota sunset as we passed the city. Waitha used to live there and we stopped to eat at one of her old haunts, and I pondered how little I kept up with my family. She went through some really hard things to get to this moment, same as Elena did, same as me, I supposed. And so here were three natives alive in this world. Our ancestors were hunted and killed, or imprisoned in one way or another, by the very government we three lived under. Alcohol and strange, unhealthy food tried to kill us, as did every teacher, movie, book, and politician that tried to tell us we were no longer relevant. We three who stumbled through this world and made mistakes and struggled to figure where we fit in, where we belonged, were together now in a jeep on the way to the biggest indigenous resistance in recent history. We were right where we belonged, somehow. As we rolled into South Dakota, the sun vanished and the world turned way darker than I was used to. 
GPS was worthless, but we'd seen an eagle flying alongside us earlier, and we took it as a good sign. What wasn't a good sign were the many Trump signs we saw. I had the sinking dread that he might actually win, as insane as it seemed, and he was no friend to natives or nature. He also had money in the very pipeline in question. I pushed it down, out of my hands. After a while, it was as if we were on a distant planet. There was no light save ourselves, and the world seemed to end just beyond the headlights. Elena put in Neil Young, and it was a comfort to all of us. I asked them if they were nervous. Elena believed in what was happening there and saw it as the beautiful, important thing it was, which put her fears way in the background. Waitha was excited to be here, to hopefully see family and friends she hadn't for some time, and to fight the man in whatever way she could. Me? I was beginning to wonder why I was alone. I kept that to myself. We drove deeper into the darkness, and it hit me out of nowhere how alone we three were. All of our parents were gone. Waitha's father, an activist and badass, had passed some time before, and her mother, Jean, a legendary activist and one of the strongest women I knew, went back to the earth just recently. And of course, Elena and I were alone now. We felt as though the spirit of Jean Day was cheering us on. Mom would have been worried about us. Dad? He probably would have thought we were nuts. But they were gone now. The many times I thought of calling them only to pause and remember. We were beholden to no one save the next generation, and there wasn't anyone for us to ask, how should we proceed? In that darkness, I began to understand the idea of living for the next generation. Those who came before leave, and sometimes they leave a mess. Sometimes they prepare you, and sometimes they cripple you. But in the end, it's up to you how you live, and the ones who benefit or suffer are the children we have now. I think everyone who was resisting at Standing Rock understood that long before I did. I still don't completely understand, but I'm trying. Welcome back to another edition of I-94. My name is Mr. Jamie Trecker. As always, I am joined by Mr. Jeremy Kitchen. Good morning. We would be joined by Mr. Michael Sack. He's on the road today. We are speaking with Jim Terry. He is an artist and a writer. He's written a memoir that is a graphic novel. It's called Come Home Indio. It's out from Street Noise, and you just heard a selection from that book. Uh, before, in the first half of this program, we were talking about uh, Jim's book, his childhood, uh, the program that he was in to get uh, sober, his recovery. And one of the things I wanted to do before we kind of close uh, a page on that and go to some other stuff, one of the things that really struck me was that you mentioned explicitly in the in the book that the people who were in that 12-step program with you had the same sort of coping mechanisms and sense of humor as you'd seen in people in the indigenous community you'd come from. And I thought that was a really interesting connection that I personally had not made. I, I'll be first to admit it. I really do not know much about American indigenous communities. I, I, I did not grow up near one at all. So I, I don't know many people who are in that, but I wonder if you could talk about that because it struck me as a, a central kind of focal point of the book as well, how some of the things that uh, got you through these dark times are also things that unfortunately the indigenous community in the United States has had to do to get through dark times as well. Oh, well, that's a, that's a heavy thing to ponder. <laughs> I'm not sure that I even, you know, when I wrote that, it was just, uh, and basically what the situation is, is, you know, uh, uh, I'm at, I'm, I'm listening to somebody speak about their, their, uh, their life and their recovery and people are laughing at the same dark stuff that, and, and, it, and I was familiar with that because I grew up around that, you know, uh, you laugh at, you laugh at the misery, you know, you find a way to poke fun of it. And, uh, 
and kind of uh, put a little pinhole in it and let out the gas. And that's pretty much, that's, that's how I was raised. You know, that's the kind of humor that I was raised with. And, um, and I don't think that it's, I don't think that it's specific to native people. Uh, I think that uh, I have some Irish friends who have a very similar <laughs> sense of humor as well, you know, and, and, uh, and we discuss the, my Irish friend and I discuss the possibility of that arising from, you know, uh, living under some kind of an occupation, you know, and, uh, and so who knows, who knows where it comes from, but if you, if you have a strong sense of community, which, you know, my, my native family does have a strong sense of community as, you know, as crazy as it might be sometimes, there is that feeling. And when you go through things, difficulties, and it's passed down for generations, you know, that humor is passed down as well, because that's what you learn. That's how you learn to, to, to look at certain things, you know. There's, there's nothing worse than being faced with a situation that you have no control over and that you are subject to, whether you like it or not. And uh, what, how do you deal with that? Do you let it completely destroy you or do you laugh about it with your friends and, and try and continue? I wanted to mention this before I forget, Jim. You talk about an indigenous community up near uh, Wisconsin Dells that you spent time there uh, when you were a kid. Uh, a couple questions. I'm not exactly, I wasn't clear in the book exactly. Was that uh, like a place people went or is that was that a place people lived? And then my second question is, is it still there? Well, you know, I, the thing is, for me, it was always just the Indian Heights when I was growing up. That's all I knew it as. Okay. You know, and I knew it as a centralized area where most of my family was. Uh, but as I've gotten older and learned more things, I, I learned that, uh, you know, we, we used to be called Winnebago's. And uh, what happened was they, uh, during the, the forced relocation, we were brought to, to the Midwest or further west. And half of the tribe broke off and returned to Wisconsin and just stayed there. The other half became reservation Indians. So we were never really on a reservation. And uh, so that area was, from what I understand, was gifted to the natives by a bunch of uh, white housewives in Wisconsin who pulled their resources or got grants or whatever and bought this patch of land. And then, you know, HUD came in and put these houses up and that's where, where most of my family ended up living. And uh, so it wasn't really a reservation, although I, I hear that it has been recently made into a reserve, a federally recognized reserve. But, you know, that wasn't, that wasn't the case when I was growing up. It was just where everybody was from. Gotcha. Yeah, I was, you know, so it's really complicated. And, and I had to ask people and find out myself and actually do some reading in, uh, in a few books about, about the Relocation Act and what happened to those tribes. And my tribe happened to be mentioned in there. And it was a shocking revelation. Yeah, to say the least. Yeah, I mean, one of the things that struck me about a lot of those passages, and I guess it caused me to think about my own lack of knowledge of it, one of the other themes in this book is kind of that erasure of culture and that erasure of identity. Um, 
I got the, the sense through the book, and I, I'm trying to think of the best way to put this. One of the other things I, I took away from your memoir was the fact that I realized that we do not think a great deal about Native issues. And when I say that, I kind of mean in the zeitgeist. You don't necessarily read about it in a newspaper. It's not necessarily on a TV show. It's, it's probably not mentioned unless it's on a small left-wing community radio station such as Lumpen. And I, I started to think about that and wondered why it was. And, you know, when reading your book, um, it struck me how planned that erasure seemed. Uh, it seemed like there was a reason, and I think you explicitly put this, that, you know, people were not supposed to speak tribal languages. They, they were supposed to uh, do this. I think there's a passage where you say, you know, that you're supposed to get the Indian out of you know, the native person to save his soul. Uh, I believe early on, I'm, I'm probably misquoting yeah. that, but could you talk a little bit about that? I mean, that was, that was one of the strongest things I came away with it from the book and one of the most affecting things. And candidly, I was a little embarrassed that I had personally never really thought more about that. Well, uh, I think that most people don't think about it and it's not really their fault. The only hope that I have is that when they do come to that realization that maybe they do pursue learning who lived on the land that they now occupy and what were they like? Why are they no longer here? Are they still here? You know, and uh, if, if a person is naturally curious like that, then they will discover a lot of things, you know, and uh, I, one of the great tortures of my own life, one of the things that I tortured myself was my, with was my ignorance about a lot of this stuff. And I would get insanely defensive because, you know, people would ask me things, you know, does your tribe have feathers and all that? Do you wear feathers? Do you live on a reservation? Uh, and I was embarrassed by a lot of these questions because not for one, it felt like, uh, okay, that's who you see. You know, that is what you see is this cartoon John Wayne villain or, you know, uh, Walt Disney uh, well, which one was the one where they where they do that awful dance around the camp? Was that Peter Pan or that was that I, was I Disney? Know. Yeah, because I'm I mean, not sure. And I, I noticed you mentioned you were talking about the movies with Italian guys with blue eyes playing uh, yeah. tribal members, which uh, I had actually seen The Searchers the night before on TCM. So I was like, yeah. ah, this is exactly where he got this from. Yeah, I have a very difficult time with that movie, you know, and. Um, and I know I recognize it as a great film because I'm a huge film buff. But uh, I have a real difficult time with that movie and with John, with John Wayne and with John Ford. If you ever get a chance, there's a documentary out there called The Real Indian, R-E-E-L, Indian. I highly recommend anybody who wants to see an alternative side of things to check that out. I would like to check that At out. At any rate. At any rate, uh, I, I don't blame anybody for not for being ignorant, you know, about these things because we're we're not taught them. I wasn't taught them. Like I said, there's an entire passage in the book where it shows me in grade school being told that Columbus was the first American, you know. So and what a great man he was. Yeah, what that, a great guy. Yeah. What a great guy. You know, Andrew Jackson. What a <laughs> the common man's president. What a fantastic guy. <laughs> you know, and so the, this is what I was raised with, and it took me actively pursuing it because 
as it says in the book, you know, my grandmother was, was put in one of those schools and her hair was cut off and she was given a Christian name and she lived the rest of her life following the Roman Catholic uh, church. Wow. And so my mother was not raised traditionally. And so by the time it got to me, that was three levels of trickle down, you know, uh, cultural genocide. So I had no clue what was going on. And, you know, add to that, that I was living in the suburbs. So it, I had no clue what was happening. And when I went to Standing Rock, there were people there that I met who were raised traditionally and had entirely different outlooks of, of the cultural situation and the, you know, the, uh, the situation of our, of our own government, you know, had entirely different ideas about it and our history. And so, uh, you know, that was a great awakening in many ways for me, not just uh, as far as in my own spirit, but in my mind as well, as for how do I pursue the truth? You know, and the truth is difficult. And I think that's why most people just prefer not to, to deal with it, because there's really not much we can do about what happened in the past. Uh, not much I can do, uh, but to educate ourselves and, and, you know, to try and address it where it is now. But that, that whole sequence where I read uh, um, uh, Bury My Heart at Wounded Knee, mm. that was one of the most heartbreaking things I've ever read in my life because, it, well, it's in the book, you know, it was tough. I'm going, I'm really ranting now. So I'm going to I'm just no, going to I, mean, I, I don't think you're ranting at all. I think that was pretty concise. And I think people yeah. need to hear that, including myself. Um, I, I, I'm going to check out that documentary. And um, there was just one last, I were running out of time, but there's a, a very funny, another funny part of your book when you're uh, in an evangelical church and, and the guy's telling you, praying, you're just like, oh man, I don't know if I can do this, you know, and I'm, I'm paraphrasing, but that cracked me up because I also had a situation similar to that with a, with a born again relative. And um, th that was hilarious. And, and, you know, nobody, I mean, I shouldn't say that. I personally wouldn't want to participate in that kind of thing. And I can imagine if you're, um, you know, obviously if you're indigenous, you're not going to want to participate. And you were talking about when you're praying, you're like, you know, this stuff's been forced on us. And, you know, I, I don't think I can subscribe to this, but you're still praying to God. And I, I, I don't know. I thought that was, it was funny, but again, it was also um, very realistic and emotional. And, and, and uh, uh, I, I, I mentioned this again in your, in the email. I mean, you really bared it all here, man. And uh, I, I give you a lot of credit for that. I think this book's going to help people. So. Yeah, I hope so. <laughs> I don't want to bear it all for nothing, man. <laughs> well, we are we are running quick on time. Real quick before we get to kind of our, our wrap up here, can you talk just briefly a little bit about Standing Rock, which makes up kind of the close of this book and and represents both a stylistic difference in the way that you presented it. Uh, you know, previously it had been a, a straightforward kind of what I would call a cartoon graphic novel, and it becomes instead prose over more elaborate uh, full splash page drawings. Can you talk a little bit about how that affected you and changed your life? Oh, and it, it did in so many ways. And, you know, like I said, I, I've been suffering from, uh, and, you know, I didn't even realize it was this until I started reading some of the reviews, but apparently I suffer from a heavy dose of imposter syndrome. And, uh, 
that's always plagued me as far as my, my native side is concerned. And, uh, because I am half Irish, you know, and, um, and going out to Standing Rock and the, the tribal politics that I had been privy to through the eyes of, you know, my family, my immediate family, uh, it wasn't very, there wasn't a, it didn't feel like there's a ton of solidarity, you know, it felt, it felt very corrupted by, uh, colonial idealism so when i went out there i went out there with the fear that i would literally be rejected that they would say you're not native enough get out of here you know and the welcome that i received there was uh it, it felt ancient it felt like come in you know you're here good that's what it felt like and uh the sense of community like i, I I'm, without trying to sound romantic about it, I, but that's just who I am anyways. I can't, I can't help that. <laughs> I, I felt what I began to understand what a community felt like, even just in the short amount of time I was there, you know, people helping others without motive. And, uh, and the way that they dealt with the conflict was profound to me. And it's in the book. I elaborate on it in the book, but it was such an antithesis to all the fear culture that I had been so inundated with in, in the last couple decades. You know, uh, better watch out for that guy. You don't know who he is. You know, here it was, you don't know who that guy is. Have him for coffee and find out who he is. And it was such a mind-blowing revelation to hear somebody espouse this kind of philosophy and to back it up. And I don't even get close to talking about the things that I saw and began to understand while I was there. You know, I didn't want it to be all about that. And that's why, that's also why I changed the style because I didn't want to make this into a cartoon. You know, I was fine making myself into a cartoon and the situation I was in, I was fine cartooning but this, I did not want to trivialize it or diminish it in any way. But I also didn't want to represent it necessarily either because I was only there for a short amount of time. I, I met people there who had been there for months and suffered greatly. And um, so I didn't want to act as though I was an ambassador to that situation. All I could do was share what I experienced in, in my own limited way. And I thought I could do that better with prose and certainly maybe just a couple images. And uh, yeah, I, I, I'm grateful for having gone, but uh, it, it's, it was a complicated thing. You know? Well, we've been speaking today with the artist and author Jim Terry. His new graphic novel, Come Home Indio, a memoir is out now from Street Noise. Jim, you mentioned at the top of the show you're working with uh, fellow Chicagoans Tim Seeley and, and Mike Norton. What other uh, cartooning comic books do you have on tap after this one? Oh, geez. I don't know. I burned out. <laughs> <laughs> I'm working on a few things, but unfortunately, right after I finished this book, COVID struck and the entire industry took yeah, a breath. Of course. Yeah. You know, and uh, and now we're all trying to figure out, you know, what to do. And I took a break as well at the worst time possible. You know, so now I'm not really stressed about it. You know, I have a lot of projects that I'm working on personally, 
including some possible film projects. And so, you know, I'm, I'm open to whatever, whatever, what, whichever direction it goes. So cool. uh, I might be working with Tim Seeley again in the near future. Uh, I might be self-publishing some stuff. Who knows? Yeah. Well, we've been speaking again to Jim Terry. Uh, thanks so much for joining us today, Jim. We really appreciate it. Hey, thanks for having me. It was good to talk to you guys, and I hope I didn't get too heavy. No, this no, is no, great it's stuff. good. It's good to see you, man. It's good to see you too. Um, you know, bizarrely, you. next week on I ninety four, we're continuing with the comic book theme. It's True Believer: The Rise and Fall of Stan Lee with Abraham Reisman. So we'll be talking about uh, corporate comics next week. You can join us as always at Thursday at eleven o'clock or Sunday at eleven o'clock right here on I ninety four. Jim. Best of luck, and thanks so much for sharing your story with us. If people want more information, they can go to streetnoisebooks.com, and they can find this at any library and probably all good bookstores not named Amazon. Thanks so much, Jim. Thanks, Jim. Thank you. is Lumpin' Radio's books and literature program, airing every Sunday and Thursday at 11 a.m. Central. This episode featured writer and artist Jim Terry, author of Come Home Indio, a graphic novel out now from Street Noise Press. This episode originally aired on April 1st, 2021. I-94 is a Lumpin' Radio production, with readings by Shanna Van Bolt, show intro and promo voiced by David Green, music by Laurie Johnson and Bill Bennett from the KPM Archive. For more information on I-94 and for past episodes, visit eye94.org. For more information on Lumpen Radio, visit lumpenradio.com.